All right. Um, so no whiteboard this week. Sorry. Um, last week at the end, I was sitting here during that last song, look right in front of the whiteboard and realized I had this giant whiteboard with one black circle in the middle of it. And I was like, that is, that is a waste of a giant whiteboard. I probably didn't need to have it, but it felt fun to have it up here. So, but I couldn't justify it this week, couldn't find a reason to have it. Uh, but we are still in the book of Ephesians. We um, are taking a few weeks uh, going through Ephesians, uh, through the lectionary passages. And so um, after this week, there will be a transition in the book. Uh, so the way Ephesians works, again, is it's, it's what they call a circular letter. In other words, even though it's called the book to the Ephesians, uh, what we've realized is the, the oldest copies of it we found don't actually have anything about Ephesus in it. So what it most likely is, is like an elongated sermon that was meant to be passed around to any church anywhere, right? So that, that kind of helps us a little bit because there's a little less context to figure out. If I wrote a letter to the Ecclesians, however you say that, Ecclesians, whatever we are, um, you would want to know a little bit about what was going on in this community, right? What, what year did it come in? Was it pre-pandemic or post-pandemic or mid-pandemic? And, and who was here and who wasn't here and what kind of things had happened? Uh, was there an election or not election? What happened in the election? All these kind of things are things you would want to know about that community when you read a letter to them so you could understand why things were being said. And that is one of the more difficult things about translating and reading in the New Testament is a lot of it are these letters that are written to particular people at particular times and in particular situations, and we have to navigate what's being said to those folks, what does it mean for us today, and what ways are we similar or different, and what's a kind of an abiding principle versus something that needed to happen then. It can get a little messy and murky sometimes, right? Well, Ephesians helps us a little bit. It's just a little more objective than that. And the way it kind of lays out is the first three chapters, which will be in chapter three tonight, and we're not doing the entire chapter, but a, but a, a little chunk of it, but, um, and it'll kind of end the section of Ephesians that is uh, kind of an extended reflection, uh, almost an extended praise of who God is and what God is doing and what it means for us and our relationships together and with God, right? And so the book is going to move after this towards... Um, ethical exhortations. Here's how I want you to act in this world. Here's how I want you to treat each other. Here's how I want you to approach the world and serve the world and all those kind of things. So this is the kind of the end of don't forget who God is. Don't forget what's going on. It's the, it's the backdrop on which everything else is going to be painted, right? And uh, if, you, uh, if you are an artist at all, um, you're, you know that the backdrop matters a lot, right? And, and nowadays, the backdrop is even more important because we have means of removing things from their backdrops and giving them completely different meanings altogether. In fact, my favorite example of this I saw recently was a, a dad who is obviously someone after my own heart, uh, and he's a dad who stays at home with his kids and his wife works, and he was getting a lot of texts from his wife all the time that he felt like indicated uh, that she didn't trust him with their children. And so she was constantly call, you know, texting and saying, how are the kids doing? What's going on with the kids? And so what he started doing was uh, he had a little extra time in his hands. I'm not sure because there's two kids. But, uh, and he was into Photoshop. So what he started doing was taking pictures of, ki of their kids and then taking out the kids, removing them from one backdrop, and then setting them on another backdrop so it looked like something insanely crazy was happening with the children. And then he would just reply back, with these pictures. And so, uh, no, I've got a couple of these on slides, so I wanna show you. They, she sent them and say, how are the kids are doing? And then uh, go ahead to the next slide uh, there, Noah, if we can find it. I think I have pictures there, don't I? This is a really bad setup if there's not pictures in the slideshow. 
All right. <laughs> it's going to be worth it, I promise. It should be right in there with all the music slides and everything just in the middle. Oh, it's just freezing on you. All right. Well, we'll show them to you later. Of course it freezes right when I need the actual pictures to show up. Um, if, you hit the, if you hit the forward arrow, it's not, mo not advancing slides? Okay. Cool. It was hilarious. Just trust me. So anyways, he would, I mean, he would do things like, uh, say, how the kids are doing? And then he would send back a picture, and like one of them is, he's holding up a couch with, and vacuuming, and the baby's like underneath the couch. Like he's going to drop it. Or the baby's like sitting on the edge of a cliff, right? Or, or whatever. One, he's got like baby taped to the wall while he's doing something. And so he's taking these pictures of the baby. This is, this is a very effective, if uh, PowerPoint would agree with us, uh, and you saw the pictures. But he takes something out of the, off the backdrop, put it on a new backdrop, and it completely changed what was going on. What was otherwise sweet or innocent or cute became wildly dangerous and irresponsible, right? And that's what happens if we're not careful with the backdrop. And I say that to say um, what we'll end up kind of finishing talking about today, what we've talked about the last two weeks, this is the correct backdrop by which we should paint everything else on in the rest of the book of Ephesians. Um, and the reason that's important is because um, just like everywhere else in the Bible, there are parts of the books of Ephesians that, that we'll get to um, that have been pulled off of this backdrop and used in such a way that something that's intended to be uh, beautiful and loving and good can become ugly, ugly and dangerous, right? Does that make sense? It would have tied together beautifully. Trust me. Just, just go ahead and be moved on behalf of the pictures that didn't show up. But, uh, and so that's an important thing. We're kind of finishing up this backdrop. You remember in, in week one, we talked about the idea, the good news of being chosen. And there's this idea that God, out of God's own will, not because we deserved it, not because we earned it somehow, God chose us, God adopted us, God gave us an inheritance because God loved us without condition. And we talked about that good news. And then last week we talked a little bit, and if you weren't here, uh, go back and watch it. Uh, you, know, you can find it through Facebook and the YouTube channel and all that. Um, we talked about what that means for us as people. If we believe in grace, if we are a people of grace, then uh, the, the dividing lines that we have created disappear. That we're no longer, as we talked about last week, no longer a bounded community whose job it is to man the gates and man the fences and make sure people don't get in that aren't supposed to be in or make sure people who are in that we don't think should be here get out. Instead of being a bounded community, uh, it says that Christ is drawing all things and all people unto himself. We are a centered community. We all exist in relation to the center. It's not our job to, to man the gates. It's not our job to determine who's in or who's out. Uh, it's not our job to create rules that keep people in or out or that allow us to know if someone's good, bad, or otherwise. It's not our job. Grace gets rid of all those things. Unconditional love gets rid of all those things. As soon as you draw that boundary, you've put a condition on something that's meant to be without one, right? And that's a different way of looking at things. Most of us that grew up in church grew up in, in, in our different denomination or a different church. It was just, what made them different was we just had different lines, right? And one of the things we've stri we've, we strive to do here, it's not perfect. We're not perfect by any means. Uh, but what, part of what makes us a little bit odd is we try to remain a centered community. When we say everyone is welcome, we mean everyone's welcome. 
Anyone who walks in that door, no matter what they're going through, where they've been, what's going on in their lives, all exist in relation to the same God we do. They may feel far away, they may feel real close, they may be somewhere different days, and, and, and I don't know, but we are all being drawn towards the Creator, right? So we talked about that last week. And then this week, um, after we talked about those things, um, we're going to get to finish this backdrop. Um, that in the midst of God drawing all people and all things unto God's self, the writer closes chapter 3 and this introduction with this. And you, and you heard a moment ago, but I, I want to read it again. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in, in your inner being with the power through the Spirit, and in your inner being with power through his Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And that amen closes this introduction as we move into the rest of the letter. There's some beautiful language in there, right? And tonight we're going to talk about being rooted and grounded in the kind of love that demonstrates what it says here is the fullness of God. And as always, and we've done this before, but I feel always need to feel like we need to do this. Anytime we're going to have a conversation about love, we should start with a definition of terms. Right? Uh, I would say that American Christianity has always struggled with uh, believing that God is love and, and God is characterized by love, right? It runs counter to the kind of strength and power that we've always lifted up. It runs counter to the kind of uh, strength and power that we've always uh, looked for in our leaders, that we've always wanted in ourselves. It runs contrary to kind of what our culture builds up. Uh, in fact, I would encourage you, if, if you, uh, you want to get a really uh, well-written, easy-to-read, and just fascinating look at this history, uh, there's a book that got put out not too long ago called Jesus and John Wayne. Uh, and it's a great read. I'm not usually a history guy. Uh, I, don't, I don't necessarily really like reading history too much. It's, it's a great read, and it kind of walks through that idea of uh, a God, uh, of kind of our culture building up this thing that really has nothing to do with Jesus, uh, but that we admire a certain kind of quote-unquote strength and power, and then we've kind of just transposed Jesus on top of that later on, right? I think we've struggled with this. If you in, in America as a church or as a preacher, uh, and I've certainly been accused of this, if you start talking too much about God as love, you will be accused of being a little too hippie-ish, a little too ethereal, a little too warm and too cuddly. You'll be thought of as soft on justice and unrealistic in what is a very dangerous world that we live in, right? And there is no doubt that that could be true, if by love you mean the stuff of like teen romance novels or something, right? 
If your uh, story of reference to love is the Twilight books, then you might be able to make the case that we're being a little too soft and warm and fuzzy and, and mushy in the, in, in the light of a world that is very difficult. But that is not the story that defines love for us. We have the benefit of a concise and jarring narrative that clearly shows us what we mean when we say love as followers of Christ. We have the cross. Not set in a 30-minute Nothing is messy TV sitcom where everything wraps up and it's nice in 28 minutes or less. Not a story of sanitized romance, but a story of blood and sweat and tears that confront violence and anger directly and unflinchingly. We have the cross. A story that does not claim, uh, a a story of love that does not claim that to which it has rights, but lays its life down for its friends and its enemies, a love that will absorb all of the hate, all the anger, all the bitterness, all the sin of this broken world and offer healing and grace and forgiveness and love in return. It does not conquer like we conquer. It does not win by overpowering or humiliating. It does not carry a sword in its hand, and the only blood it sheds is its own. It's a love that wins by losing. It doesn't make much sense. It may not be the kind of love we'd like to consider for ourselves, but it is anything but weak. And and you can say it's it's the cross, and you can even say that its shape is hidden in this very text. I've never thought about this before uh, until one of the pastors, we we meet every week, a group of pastors, and we talk about things, and and we were talking about this passage, and they, they pointed this out to me, and I never thought of it before. That even within this passage, you have this cruciform shape, this, this cross shape, right? As we understand the breadth and length and height and depth. Which I'm now going to think of that image every time I read this passage. God's love looks like the cross. Always has, always will. If anyone claims something is God's love or is of God and it doesn't look like the love demonstrated on the cross, you are right to question it. I'll go ahead and tell you, there is a lot that's called Christian out there that looks nothing like the cross. The writer of Ephesians further indicates that this love, this cross-shaped love, which surpasses knowledge, it doesn't make sense to us, it surpasses knowledge, holds the fullness of God. That is a big statement. It holds the fullness of God. Cross-shaped love holds all of who God is. There is no part of God, no activity of God, no command of God that falls outside of this love. It holds the fullness of God, for God is love. And to be honest with you, I've, I've changed a lot uh, in my faith. I mean, I, 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 I said the prayer when I was four years old in the, in the hallway with my preschool teacher, Miss Todd. Uh, she was very pretty. I kind of wanted some alone time with her, but I was very sincere. As a four-year-old, I meant it, you know, but I grew up in church, grew up in Christian school. I, you know, I've, I, I've kind of been doing this thing for a long time now. And this realization that uh, nothing about God falls outside of love is, has become the absolute cornerstone of my theology. It's the thing that has shifted my lens more than anything else in the many years and decades I've been doing this. 
Because honestly, that was never even a consideration for me growing up. We never talked about it like that. In fact, most of what we talked about are the things you do and don't do. We were very kind of rules-based. And the rules, honestly, were presented as um, arbitrary. Now, we never used that word. uh, But the logic we used around the commands of God looked a whole lot like the logic I use with my kids, and I'm too tired to argue. I I swore I was never going to do this because I hated it when my parents did it. But I I pulled this out all the time. Go brush your teeth. Why? Because I said so. Why? Because I said so. Yeah, but why? Because I'm the dad and I said so. Brush your teeth, right? I don't want to, there's good reason for my daughter to brush her teeth. There's hygienic reasons, there's all kinds. We don't want to smell her breath. There's all kinds of good reasons for her to brush her teeth. But I just appeal to the I'm in charge and I said so. I don't need you to understand it. There doesn't have to be a reason. I said it. I'm dad. I said it. That settles it, right? And that's how we talked about the rules when I was a kid. And it was like, if, I mean, in fact, in my, in my church in Sunday school class, you kind of got in trouble if you started asking questions. And in retrospect, these were like volunteer Sunday school teachers, they weren't, you know, trained in theology. It wasn't very far into asking questions when they probably felt uncomfortable and just told us to be quiet, right? And I get that uh, now, I understand that. But I have, a, I have a problem with any presentation of the rules, the commands of God, that just are uh, arbitrary because God said so. I don't think God is arbitrary. I think God is love. It's problematic because you can and I can get the Bible to say just about anything if I pick and choose, you know, correctly or incorrectly as it might go. If you know how to choose well, you can get the Bible to say just about anything. And we have. We use the Bible to justify slavery. We use the Bible. You can do it. We've used the Bible for most of the history of the world to justify patriarchy. We've used the Bible to justify all kinds of horrible things if you just choose correctly. But what ends up happening is you end up creating these rules, you take these things, you take them out of contest, and, and, and you don't need to find any reason behind them because God just said it and that's all that matters. And then you suddenly have these rules that have no real loving purpose. As if there's any part of God that is random and or arbitrary. When God is and always has been intentional, sacrificial love. And if God is that love, then any act of God or command of God will be born of that love. That's where it comes from. In fact, Jesus himself tells us that all the commands are merely subsets of love. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. Everything hangs on this. There is no rule just because. There are ways of treating ourselves, of treating each other and creation that we are called to. And we are called to those because they are more loving than the alternatives. There are things we are called to do that order our relationships and our sexual lives and all those things. But they're not arbitrary rules that God just came up with to try and make life hard on us or to test us in some ways. 
They are expressions of God's love. And I think if you really press a lot of times and ask people why about the rules that they are so certain God has come up with, they can't find any loving reason for them. It's just because God said so, period. I'm okay with not accepting that as an answer. There's nothing God wants us to do that is not intended to bring cross-shaped love into this world. A lot of the things I was told God wanted us to believe or do in regards to our neighbors produced fear, anger, shame, and pain in my life, in my neighbors' lives, in the world around me. They weren't based in cross-shaped love, and they didn't produce cross-shaped love. And when that is the case, we have something to re-examine. Something has gotten missed in translation. Because at the end of the day, we want for everything that we do, everything that comes from us, to be this love as well. To use the, the words from Ephesians here, we want to be rooted and grounded in this sacrificial love. Such that all that we produce, every fruit that comes from our lives, is drawn from that soil. And when we are rooted in that love, then there is a power at work in us that it says is able to accomplish more than we could imagine. Part of, part of the argument against focusing too much on love as a church is how unrealistic it is in such a broken world. There is real evil, real violence, and it doesn't just go away because we all hold hands and sing kumbaya. Correct. Do you really think we can solve it with love? Yes. I'm not talking about holding hands and saying kumbaya and acting like nothing is wrong when it's wrong, but do we think we can solve it with love? That is our claim. That is the basis of our faith. Can we really do it by turning cheeks and showing grace to our enemies? Isn't that naive? Doesn't that not make sense? That's not how the world works. And you're right, 100%. That is not how the world works. And how's that working for us? Jesus did offer an alternative way of living. God's love may not fit into our common wisdom, but Jesus seemed to actually believe it, and we say we're following him. Jesus actually turned the literal other cheek. Jesus actually chose to move down the ladder of life. Jesus actually refused to fight like the world as a, and ascribed value and worth even to his enemies. Jesus actually intentionally bled for those who decided to kill him for his love, and the world has never been the same. We're still talking about him every week. We're still trying to figure him out. Not because he had bigger and better versions of the same weapons and warplanes that we produce, but because he had the cross, the cross and he died on that hill. And that love, that cross-shaped love, can accomplish more than we can ever imagine. And our imaginations are pretty small. Don't trade it for anything. Root yourself in it. Ground yourself in it. Claim it. You are chosen in love, by love, for love, and that is not weak. You are adopted in grace so that we might live without all of the boundaries that have separated us from one another. 
and we can root ourselves in this cross-shaped love and accept nothing else as belonging to God. So that maybe we might actually see some of those things we haven't even dared to dream about actually come to pass in this world. And to steal the words of this letter, now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, this is our prayer each and every week. That somehow when we come into this room and we gather together, when we sing these songs and we share these words and we pray these prayers and hear these scriptures, that we might know a little more about the breadth and length and height and depth of your cross-shaped love. Lord, may we dare not speak of you outside of that love. Lord, may our imaginations grow. May our dreams grow. May we root and ground ourselves in the love that you have claimed is in the midst of setting all things right, redeeming and reconciling all things unto you. Lord, may we embody your love in this world. We love you and we ask all things in your name. Amen.